0: You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Last week at the end of this sermon, I had planned an illustration from this book, The Boys in the Boat. We were talking about Peter and his witness, and there's some great information about these boys and their witness to the world. That I wanted to use but then I thought I had a better idea so I changed it up But I promised you that I would uh, come back and share this and luckily it's a thick book So there's lots in here. So it gives me opportunity to make a different kind of illustration But the boys in the boat is a wonderful read. It's ended up on the New York Times bestseller list It's been moving on its way up that list for a few weeks now. It's written by Daniel James Brown He not only tells the story, but he does extensive research and background about these boys in the boat. The boys he's talking about are boys that represented the United States in the Olympic Games in 1936, Berlin, Germany, in eight-man rowing. They were a rowing crew from Washington University. And he does research. He has access to their journals and their personal letters. He talked to some of them who were still alive when he heard about the story. He talked to some of their family members about what this had meant to them. He was able to glean from all of that a great sense of insight into what went on with these eight boys. And they really were boys, 18, 19, 20 years old, University of Washington. They had all grown up through the Great Depression. He talks about the difficulties that it caused them, the kind of things they endured. Some of you lived through that as well. You could identify. It was eye-opening to me how drastic and devastating it really was for some of them who endured that. But anyway, they loved row. Now, I've seen some of these boats down on the Arkansas River. When I see them from afar, it looks like they're just gliding along. I mean, it seems so peaceful and so serene. But he says if you're in the boat rowing, it's a whole different experience, especially if you're training or racing, it's very different. Brown describes the difficulty, you might even say suffering, these boys endured to prepare to give their best. He describes their training in quite a lot of detail. He tells about how they. Worked on their stamina and their endurance, but he also talks about the winter of 1935 and 36 before the olympics He says the weather was terrible. He describes one storm that came blowing in off the coast October 1935 he said the winds began to build and got stronger and stronger till they were blowing steadily at 30 miles an hour Then he says the snow began to fall. He said it fell so heavy that the next morning the paper reported Seven houses had burned to the ground because their chimneys got packed with snow He said the temperature continued to drop lower and lower for the next seven days He said that first night it plummeted into the 20s and the snow just began to pile up And then it got colder and colder and the winds continued But he said coach Al Albrechtson their coach sent the boys out on Lake Washington anyway they rowed through all of that. He said some days they were out there, their knuckles white, their feet frozen, water splashing up on the oars as they pulled them, beginning to build layer and layer upon ice, getting heavier and heavier, that if the water splashed on their sleeve or their sweatshirt or on their stocking cap, all of a sudden there was a lump of ice. But the coach had them out there rowing anyway. In short, he says, the weather that winter was atrocious, but they were not deterred. Those were the external circumstances. But internally, if you've ever trained for some physical feat, you know that internally it's about as hard, that when you begin to push your body to see how far you can go and then to see if there's a little bit more, you find yourself gulping and gasping for oxygen, all parts of your system, wanting more air, and then you find out that the next day your muscles are sore. And two days later, it's even worse. And it's just a regular part of a training regimen when you're pushing and pushing to see how strong you can be, how good you can be at any certain physical activity. Brown says that their coach called them together in January of that year and told them this. He said, this can be the greatest year for the University of Washington in rowing ever, but it will also be the most grueling season you've ever endured. And I give you all those details because I believe it helps us get to the connection between commitment and suffering that Jesus introduces in our passage today when he says to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering. One of the biblical commentators I read this week, Dr. Douglas Hare, says this is the hinge passage of this whole gospel. That it moves the gospel from a ministry of healing and teaching with great crowds joining Jesus and the disciples toward moving to jerusalem and having this confrontation with the powers that be that jesus tells them is going to include pain and suffering and for him even death at this place in the gospel here says where jesus predicts his passion and in gospel terms when we talk about passion we're talking about pathos or pathos not just suffering but the deep feeling christ has for the world For humanity that he loves so much that he is ready to suffer death, even death on a cross, to reveal the greatest love of all, God's love for us. The way of Jesus is going to be the way of deep commitment and deep love. Commitment so deep and love so deep that pain and suffering and torture and sacrifice and even death will not stop Jesus from continuing on the path on which he feels God is calling him. But just to make sure we remember the context in which this first prediction of his passion comes, let me remind you where we were last week. Jesus was talking with his disciples last week. Do you remember? And he said, who do people say that I am? They say lots of different names of others that we have testimony to in our Hebrew scriptures. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? And remember, Simon Peter is the one who answers. And in verse 16, he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Matthew tells us that then Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are feeder. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I mean, it's a high moment in the gospel that turns them toward Jerusalem. But then the passage we read today... Falls immediately after that. It may be same part of the same conversation. Jesus and Peter are still the two main actors. They're the main actors in both of these passages. Right after Peter says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then Matthew tells us what we read today. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must Go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering. And Peter doesn't like that. And so Matthew says Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus answers him, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And Dr. Douglas Hare pointed out in his commentary a feature of this passage I had never noticed. Since they're usually separated for preaching and study, he says it's important to notice that Peter goes from rock to stumbling block in five short verses. He moves from you're the rock on which I will build my church or stake my case for the spread of the gospel to stumbling block of Satan in five verses. He moves from advocate to adversary in a flash. And it all has to do with his choices about whether or not he's going to follow Jesus. In the earlier passage, he's saying, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We're with you. But as soon as Jesus begins to talk about his Messiahship, as suffering, as pain, as something that might include even death, Peter rebukes him. It's hard to imagine. Except for this week, I began to think of my own life, and I thought, you know, I deal with that struggle too. I think there's something here for all of us to learn. I think maybe this is a microcosm of the whole human condition Of our experience of wanting to be a follower of Christ, of dedicating ourselves to that, and then sometime later finding that we're not really following. We go from really good listeners, followers of Jesus, so often to thinking about ourselves and our own personal gain and pleasure and ignoring or forgetting or falling away from the call of God On our lives. I mean I struggle with. See if any of these questions I put in the outline. Are something you struggle with. Will I choose to attend to God. Or to the world. Will I attend to divine callings. Or to human callings. Will I focus on. The material things. Or spiritual things. Will I embrace suffering. Or look only for pleasure? Will I be a rock or a stumbling block? I think Peter's struggle is our struggle too. If you've been a Christian for very long, I bet you've experienced the struggle. If you reflect on your own pathway, I bet you could identify times where you've been the rock. And I bet you could identify the times that you've been a stumbling block. But Jesus goes on to explain to Peter and the disciples what this path of discipleship should look like. In verse 24, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves... And take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The good news is Jesus is the way to life. The other news, it's not a pleasure cruise. Jesus' way is the way of love, and that's wonderful. But it also includes willingness to suffer, to endure pain, to serve others. Well, back in the book, The Boys in the Boat, the boys train all through that winter. And by late spring, it's time for the national championships and the Olympic trials. They're in Washington. They have to travel east to the east coast. The Ivy League schools were the ones who typically dominated rowing in that day, except for more recently, the University of California had come up and won a national championship. And in fact, four years before the 36 Olympics in 1932, they were the boat that won and represented the U.S. at the Olympics and won a gold medal. So these boys know there's lots of competition when they go back east. No one expects them to win. All the papers, all the sports fans are expecting either California to repeat or one of these East Coast teams. But you know what? These boys from Washington trained so hard and were so prepared and had come together so well that they won the national championship. Then two weeks later, they go down the coast a little way for the U.S. Olympic trials, and they win again. And they're ready to represent the U.S. Until this fellow who's in charge of the Olympic committee, who's from Philadelphia, comes and says, by the way, you have to pay your own way. We need $5,000 from you if you all are going to go. But if you don't have the money, that's all right. The second-place team is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, They have the money. I know they're ready. We could send them in your place. Obviously, they didn't want them to go. This is at the backside of the Depression. Some of these boys have just worked and scraped to be even at school at all. But the coach calls back to the athletic director and says, We need some help. We need to spread the word. So the word goes out, and the Seattle Times, which was the newspaper, made a lead donation of $500. And then Standard Oil sent $50. And then the word spread out to these boys' hometowns. And they began to do fundraising. And then across the student body, and they began to do fundraising. And money began to pour in hour after hour after hour. Within two days, they raised the $5,000 and wired it to the coach and said, You're ready to go. So they board the ship. They have a great time going to Germany. They enter the first race, the qualifying race, and they win with ease. They set a course record. They couldn't really believe how easy it had been for them to win a qualifying race. It qualified them to be in the inside, the favored lane. But when the assignments came out, the German officials had assigned them to the outside lane. Oh, the German boat is going to be in the first lane. It's the worst lane. The coach complains and says, oh, that's not fair. The winds are worse out there. We were first. It didn't matter. They were assigned to that lane. That's where they were going to have to race from. And then the boy who sets the rhythm in terms of rowing that sits in the first seat has become ill. And he can't seem to get better. He's sick for days. He loses 15 pounds. He is so weak. They basically have to carry him down to the river and put him in the boat so he can race. And then when the starter signals the start of the race, they are so far away from the starter